Housekeeping Podcast with your host, Mario Girard. This is part three of the podcast with the author of the blog, Engineer Seeking Fire. He has worked as a TPM at Amazon, Microsoft, and is currently a TPM at Google. We discuss the author's take on how to prepare for interviews and what are the types of various interview questions you could hear at any one of these tech organizations. Why don't we take a different route? And I'm going to ask you about, in your opinion, how should a TPM prepare for TPM interviews for any of the tech companies? How would you approach this? And maybe you could go down into a lot more detail about that. Sure. So the way that I see about this is that there are three types of questions and kind of six main areas where a TPM needs to know how to answer in interviews. So the three types of questions are factual, behavioral, and hypothetical. So a factual question is something that requires prior knowledge. For example, if it's a technical question like what's the difference between extracts in C and C++, that might be, for example, a factual question. You need to know the answer in order to answer this. Then there's a behavioral question, which is tell me about the time when you did this. Tell me about the time when you managed a very complicated project, for example. And then there's a hypothetical question, which is Okay, what would happen if you had a project plan and suddenly two of your developers left? For example, that's a hypothetical question. So these are the types of questions, the factual, the behavioral, and the hypothetical. And then we have the areas. So the topic of those questions, if you if you want to call them differently. So one is the project management area. So that's probably one of the top areas. So that's the core part of the project of the, of the TPM. So how can they plan, organize, execute a project? How can they create, manage, and improve business processes? So how can they function as a TPM? And again, in order to look at the project management knowledge, you can ask all three questions, like a factual, for example, what is agile? Behavioral, tell me about the time when you were organizing a project using the agile methodology. Or a hypothetical, if you had to structure a project using the agile methodology, what do you do? Super cool. I just love the way how you map that out and categorize that. That's really cool. Yeah, that's the way that I see this. Many people say, okay, it's just a behavioral question. No, it's only it's not a behavioral question. It has to have a topic, right? So that's the project management. That's the area. So the first area would be, let's say, the project management area. Then the second area is kind of the technical depth. So again, as a TPM, you need to show your technical judgment. How able is this person to participate in technical discussions with the engineering team? How can they contribute to a technical discussion? For example, again, you might have different sets of questions. For example, a factual question, you know, it could be a behavioral question. For example, tell me about the time when you were facing a very complicated stack and designed the stack for me. Or a hypothetical, it could be, for example, if you were the TPM on, let's say, the next, let's say, Amazon project, how would you create this next Amazon VR headset, for example? I'm not sure if Amazon creates one, but... Disclaimer uh, that there is no inside information. No inside information. He was just putting a rabbit out of a hat. Yes, um, <laughs> just, well, there, it could be a Facebook, it could be a Google one, so I'm just putting a hat. I have no idea about Amazon Insights. So, but these are types of questions that they yeah. might ask in order to understand the general a technical judgment. I think you very initially pointed out a very, very important point here. The whole technical depth, the fundamental concept there is to understand how good would a candidate be when they're having a technical discussion. It is not that the TPM is going to write the design document. It is not that the TPM is going to lead the architectural discussion. It is whether you understand one and are able to participate and 
maybe add value to a technical discussion. That's the core concept of evaluating your technical depth in an interview. Correct. The goal is not to, at least in, in the positions that I've seen, I haven't seen any case where somebody asked the TPM to write complicated code on the whiteboard. It's mostly about how would you design things and then try and understand and from the from the perspective of the interviewer, they want to say, do you understand the concepts that you're talking about? They might, even if they ask you to design something, they will probe on different areas just to understand, okay, are you just designing a box and putting arrows there? Or do you understand what are scalability problems there, for example? So that's what they want to get from the interviewer side. And then a third area, that also depends. So the third area might be optional, but sometimes there might be questions specifically on the position. So if you are interviewing for a specific position, they might ask you questions for that specific position just to see if you are the best fit or not. So some companies do that, some companies don't do that. So the domain knowledge questions, for example, if you are interviewed for a networking position, they might ask you about something about networking protocols. Or if you are, let's say, hardware TPM, then they might ask you about the hardware lifecycle, like EVT or DVT or PVT, what are they, you know, stuff like that. Or if you're working in ML, machine learning, so they might ask you questions about machine learning models. So these are not always there, but sometimes might ask those types of questions just to judge your knowledge. So going not only on the technical depth level, but going a little bit more deeper on the domain specifically for that particular question. I I think that happens uh, in two cases. One, it's a senior or a borderline senior to a senior principal type of a role. Number two is uh, if you've already worked in that particular field, if you worked in ML and you're coming in to an ML team, or if you've worked in building out regions, for example, and you're interviewing at an organization or a team which is building regions, then people want to know how deep is your knowledge? Are you depth focused or are you breadth focused and where your strengths and weaknesses are? I see a lot of that, especially in the B2B in the cloud area, I think, and in the ML space, even in other spaces. Like I know TPMs who are moved from organization to organization and they only do payments, for example. Mm-hmm. They're experts in payments, right? Uh, Amazon, they worked on payments. They've gone to Google on payments and now they're on Stripe on payments. So there are people who have certain domain knowledge and if you have that, you ideally would like to showcase that and get some brownie points for that. That's correct. And also, I forgot to bring one of the differences between the companies that we mentioned about Microsoft, Google, Amazon, is that the way that they hire, for example, as I mentioned before, at Google, you're hired to become a Googler. So you're not hired to be in, let's say, this particular position, let's say, in Google search, for example. You're hired to be a Googler, and that's why it's easier to switch between teams. Whereas, for example, at Microsoft, you are hired for a particular team. There, they might ask you specific questions that might be related to the team. And the person who makes this decision in Google is a hiring committee versus uh, Microsoft, it's uh, the hiring manager for the team. So that changes things quite a bit. Amazon is kind of makes, I know, for MBA recruiting, that you're hired for Amazon, but if you're not, then maybe you're hired for the team. So it's a little bit of a mix there. But that also plays a role about whether you'll get asked domain knowledge questions or not, or if the questions will be more generic. So you said six areas. We've covered project management, we've covered domain knowledge, and we've covered technical depth, and we have three more to go. So the next one is the analytical ability. So this is about giving the interviewee an ambiguous problem and figuring out if they have a methodical thought process. So this can be different types of questions. For example, you know, estimation questions like how much, let's say, storage does this particular product use? 
And then you'll have to, instead of just saying a number, saying, okay, it'll use five terabytes or gigabytes or whatever, you have to show that you have some methodology to calculate this number. Or another set of questions is the ask a problem. So let's say, you know, you're working on this particular product and suddenly you see outages in Spain. Okay, what do you do? So again, instead of throwing random ideas, it's about how do you figure out the solution in a methodical way? So show that you have structure in your thinking process. So that's the idea behind the analytical abilities. Make sure that you're structured and you just don't throw ideas like darts on the wall and see what sticks. And I think for something like that, generally what I tell people is take a step back and maybe take a minute to think about it. And before you just regurgitating all the answers and all the things that come to your mind, like compartmentalize the problem and then attack the problem and form a story around it. Like, how do you start? What's your body going to be? And what's your end going to be? Especially in an analytical problem, because it's, it's going to be a new problem. You've probably not heard of it before. So it's kind of important that you take a little bit of time there before you answer that. If you think about it, for example, let's say they ask you, you know, you're working on this particular product. Let's say you're working on YouTube and they ask you, okay, how much storage will YouTube need for this particular scenario? If you are the TPM, you might be actually asked to do this. And then you might need to get some input there. Okay, you might need to ask yourself how many users will be using this? How much is the average, let's say, storage per user? Stuff like that. So you need to get these numbers. Even if you don't have the actual numbers, just writing down what you need and then making some assumptions and then putting some assumptions that make sense will help you calculate a number that you know, might or might not be logical, right? So if you say that, okay, YouTube will use five megabytes for the next month as storage, then obviously at some point, somewhere you made the wrong assumption, right? So you need to explain, okay, this is totally wrong. It's They're not only using five megabytes, for example, I made a mistake and then I explain where might be the source of the problem. So uh, it's not only calculating a correct number, it's making some assumptions that make sense and then based on those, figure out if the final number, again, makes sense or not. So you have to evaluate every step in the way as well as the final result. Got it. You have two more. So the next one is leadership. So as a TPM, we lead teams. Again, this is about how can we show that we can lead and influence the team. So this is mostly behavioral examples. So they might ask you, you know, tell me an example where you where you led the team or how you influence influence some person, or maybe if there was some conflict resolution, or maybe how did you influence the engineering team as a TPM. So this is mostly behavioral examples. And then the same thing with the, the last area, which is collaboration. So uh, collaboration is about how well can the interviewee work in teams. As a TPM, you're embedded as part of a team. So you need to have examples about how well you work there. So they're trying to figure out from the interviewer's perspective how well you work there. So in summary, I know it's a a long answer. So the six areas were project management, domain knowledge, technical depth, analytical ability, leadership, and collaboration ability. I have way more details in my blog as well, but I try to capture the whole process here. If you're listening in, you can definitely look at Engineers Seeking Fire, the blog. I'll put a link to this particular post. Also, there's going to be a full transcript of the podcast published on the mariojira.com podcast uh, site. So you can go there and it's going to be much more easy for you to read through this so that it's all better structured in a written format. What's the next topic? How do you prepare for the TPM interview from a project management standpoint? If you think about them, the answers 
belong in specific groups. For example, first of all, you need to know the project management fundamentals, right? So you need to be able to speak about the different methodologies. You need to know the correct keywords when you're answering there. So you need to know the project management fundamentals. And for this one, I suggest that it might be very useful to review the material for a PMP class. This is not about becoming certified as a PMP. I'm not sure PMP, by the way, is a project management professional. And I actually don't know many people who are certified. I'm not sure exactly. if you know. Well, I tell all my listeners, do get certified, especially if you're starting out as a young person, starting your career. I think it will be very valuable. But even if you don't get certified, as the author here mentioned, it's definitely good to look at the material. The goal is to kind of put a structure around your way of thinking. BMP does great in putting lots of structures and helping you think about things. So you have checklists. For example, I can give a very, very easy to understand example. So somebody might say, okay, as a TPM, what tools do you use? And you might say, okay, I'm sending emails. So I'm using, let's say, maybe Outlook and I'm writing documents. So I use Word and then I do some calculations. So I'm using Excel and that might be an answer, right? But if you think about it from, let's say, from the PMP perspective, okay, you have stakeholders. So what do you need to do with those stakeholders? Okay, I need to communicate. So my communication plan has emails. So I'm using, let's say, the email to send emails to the stakeholders. I'm also creating presentations. So I use, let's say, PowerPoint or or Google Slides to create the presentations to those stakeholders. I might be doing all sorts of other things with those stakeholders. And then another set is how do I create the project plan? So I might have a specific software for Gantt charts, stuff like that. So that's how the BMP material helps so that you can codify your answers in your mind and then make it easier for you to go through a checklist and provide those answers in the interview. Because in most cases, as a TPM, we know these answers, but it's very difficult in an interview to think about all these answers. Yeah. And then, so knowing the project management fundamentals, I think the PMP class, I think, helps. The other part is there are lots of behavioral questions. So you need to think about all your questions and write them down in a star format. So the star format is situation, task, action, result. So if they ask you, tell me about an example where you did X, you need to have examples about how to, from your previous experiences about when and how you solve this problem. And the star format is great. There are also lots of hypothetical questions. And then that's when you think about, you need to think about trade-offs. The most important trade-offs in your answers should be time, resources, and scope. So for example, you have a project plan, a developer left, what do you do? You need to think about the trade-offs there. Then the other part, the last part is the technical side. So there shouldn't be any coding in technical interviews for TPMs. I wouldn't suggest that you spend a lot of time for coding preparations, but there are two things that you should do at least. So one is think about a very technically challenging project that you did and create a design diagram. Be able to talk about this, talk about trade-offs, answer all sorts of detailed questions about what happened there, why is this component connected to the other one, why did you make this decision to use that component versus another one. So be very focused on explaining that. And I think Uh, when you do that, you can also ask yourself, put yourself in the interviewer's shoes and ask those questions to yourself. I think sometimes people do part one, which is they create the entire diagram and draw the whole technical challenge, but they leave it at that. They don't take it one step further of putting themselves in the interviewer's shoes and saying, hey, if somebody presents this particular diagram to me, what are the questions I would probably ask them? And that is one extra step you can take when you're thinking about your previous project to close the loop on that. 
And then the next thing again is also apart from your own project, think about other projects. For example, how would you design Airbnb? How would you design uh, Lyft? How would you design Twitter? So there are all sorts of design questions that are there. And I know, Mario, that you have a great design class. So I highly recommend it. I think it's, it's a great class to help uh, others learn about design. So understanding how something else is designed is great. And spending the time there to learn how to do these things is, will definitely pay off in technical design interviews. So from a technical perspective, looking at previous projects and seeing how you could design some product that already exists, these are the types of questions that will get asked there. So that's what you should prepare. Or maybe some other types of questions are technical questions like what happens when I type, let's say, www.google.com or amazon.com or facebook.com, what happens? So this is something that you should be, from a very high-level technical perspective, you should be able to answer. These are the types of questions to answer. So just to summarize this long answer, we had the project management fundamentals, which is good to look at the PMP class, the think about all your stories to answer all your, talk about your experiences, and then the technical side, which is looking at previous projects and how to design new projects. So these are the three big areas on how to prepare. There's one more aspect of how you'd prepare depending on the organization you're choosing to go into. Like for Amazon, you might spend more time on the leadership principles, for example. Microsoft, you might prepare both for the product management side and the TPM side, because unless you know, and that's a good question to ask your recruiter as well, right? When you talk to a Microsoft recruiter, you can always ask them, is this going to be more product management or is this going to be more TPM centric, the role itself? And you can prepare more for that. And Google, do you have any tips for Google as specifically as a TPM that you'd want people to focus more on? One of the things with Google is that if you think about it, there are five interviews at Google and then you'll get asked at least two or three questions per interview. So many of those will be about previous experiences. So think about as many stories as you can about previous experiences and about how you solved problems in the past and have multiple answers there because you might get asked the same thing multiple times. You might think, okay, I have three, four, five stories. But then if you think about it, if you have five interviews, each one might ask you three behavioral questions, so you might need 15 stories. So it's very easy in a Google interview to run out of stories. I think that was one of the things that I've seen a few times. You don't want to repeat the stories across multiple interviewers, ideally, if you can. Depending on your experience, of course, if you have four years of experience, I think if you repeat a couple of stories, I think you're okay. But if you're on the other hand, if you have like seven to 10 years of experience or 15 years of experience, ideally you have enough stories to talk about. That's correct. And one thing to note with Google is that there is a hiring committee. So every interviewer will write down all the responses that you told them, and then they will provide some evaluation, either they hire, no hire, and then all of this goes to the hiring committee. So, So let's say you use the same story multiple times maybe once per interviewer. So the interviewer might say, okay, this is a great story, you know, hire. But then if it goes to the hiring committee and then the hiring committee, they say you're a senior role, and then every time they ask you a question, you only have one project, they might say, okay, has this person throughout, let's say, 15 years of experience or 10 years or 20 years of experience, have they only worked on only this one project? And then they might say, okay, that person doesn't have enough experience, let's say, to work at Google. So that's why it's important to have, it's not only about providing the stories, it's about showing that you have worked in multiple different areas, you have lots of experiences. And again, as you said, the more senior somebody is, the more stories they have, the more projects they've worked on. 
That's really good to know. And since we started off this whole podcast talking about fire, I wanted to sidestep and see if we can talk a little bit about compensation. How is compensation generally structured in technical organizations? Why don't I think a lot of people who are already in tech organizations probably know this, but for people who are in a non-tech organization and who are trying to move into tech organization, I think this will be a good segment of understanding like how is compensation generally structured? So let me give you a little bit of a generic, the general answer, and then see how this applies into say, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, because that changes a little bit between the companies. So when you get hired let's say at any company, your offer is the salary, so the, the base salary. And then you have some, for example, this might be, let's say, $100,000 per year or $150,000 per year. Then there's a sign-on bonus. Let's say it's $15,000, $50,000, some part of the cash bonus, which you get, let's say, during the first month when you start. And then there is some type of stock, which let's say might be $100,000 in stock or $500,000 in stock or, or a million dollars in stock. Generally, I think it's units in stock. The way that I've seen it is that they tell you a number when you yes. get the offer. They might tell you you're getting, let's say, $200,000 in stock. And then at some point, this gets converted into company stock. So they will tell you, okay, this $3,000, typically after you start, at some point after you start, it gets converted in, based on the current stock price, it gets converted into, let's say, $2,000 units of stock or 500 units of stock based on the company stock at the time of the conversion. And then this gets allocated for the next three to five years, depending on the company. Some companies give it within three years, others within five years. So for example, if they give you $300,000 in stock, this gets converted into stock. Then at the end of the first year, you might get one fifth. At the end of the second year, the other fifth, etc., etc. And then as the stock increases or decreases, then this part of the compensation increases and decreases. So that's the sign-on part. You get this when you sign a new company. At the same time, every year when you're working in a company, there is perfect valuation. So you go through a performance review and based on whether you have good performance or not, you get another cash as part of the performance cycle and then additional stock that gets vested in the next, let's say, four years. So you might get $50,000 as cash that vests now and then another, let's say, $200,000 in stock that vests within the next four years. And this kind of so much varies across different organizations. Also, the rules sometimes change. Like you could have a particular rule today and then generally doesn't change, but it also sometimes I've seen it change. Like vesting schedules change. Some companies uh, you get your vest throughout the year, like every quarter. Some (laughs) companies you get it every six months. Some companies you get once a year. So the vesting schedules is also another important thing to kind of keep in mind when you're uh, comparing various tech organizations. I think you're very right. So we talked about how much stock you get, but we didn't talk about when you get the stock. Sometimes it's a, you get the stock every month, sometimes it's once a year, sometimes once a quarter. So depending on the company and depending on the, maybe even the amount of the stock sometimes, this changes. And that's the vesting schedule, right? So the vesting schedule changes depending on the company. That's something to keep in mind. So on average in Seattle or in California, what's the average salary total compensation of a senior TPM and a principal TPM? Like what are the ranges that people should be uh, kind of looking at? 
So it, it varies a lot. So Seattle is a, our California even more. It's, it's a very vast range between different companies. However, just some very high level numbers. So for example, if, you, if you're looking at Google or Facebook or maybe even Amazon, think about the intermediate TPM. It's difficult to find in most companies an entry level TPM. So most of the TPMs will be kind of intermediate. So like an L4 at Google or Facebook. So total compensation would be something like $230,000, $240,000 around that range. If you go into senior. the senior role, so that could be around $300,000, maybe a little less. If you go into the principal role, maybe you get closer into the $400,000 range, so total compensation. So I think these are the numbers, approximate numbers. Yeah, yeah. If you have, sometimes you have competing offers, they might get more. Yeah, yeah. So I think this applies for the high paying companies, I guess, yes. uh, Google, Facebook, and Amazon. I think pretty much these are kind of the ranges, you know, from yeah. a very high level perspective. I know, for example, other companies, even Microsoft might pay even less, for example, for a senior role. Uh, even though it's senior, you might get 200000 total yeah. or maybe 220. So it changes. So obviously we get other things at Microsoft. You got maybe better work-life balance, stuff like that. So or and good food, uh, very subsidized good food. <laughs> yes, I love sir. food at Microsoft. I've not worked at Microsoft, by the way. But whenever I go to meet my friends there, they have fancy restaurants in campus, which yes. are very subsidized. And you get very good maternity and paternity benefits. So I think each company is different. Before I forget, one important thing when you look at salaries is levels.fi has fantastic information, by the way, for the yes. people who are listening. That's almost gold standard. So every two years, I publish a TVM salary guide, right? And I was going to do that in 2021. And the more I was trying to do that, it was so difficult to do. And the reason why it's become extremely difficult now to do is as the compensation bands have fairly remained the same. So if you go to Amazon today and you join as a senior TPM or any other company, join as a senior TPM, you're generally hitting what our author here said, around 300. That's what he said, right? But yeah. if you join like five years ago as a senior TPM, the stock has gone up tremendously, right? Or if you join like three years ago, if you see the Amazon stock or the Google stock, or even the Microsoft stock, if you look at the last three, four years, the amount of rise the stock has given now has completely changed the compensation band. So it's like kind of very interesting whether who you talk to and where they are in that phase of, you know, are they in year three, are they in year four? And how much stock units they've been given and how much that stock is actually appreciated. I was looking yesterday on levels.fi where there was an entry from, I think, Pinterest, where <laughs> it was $1.5 million for a TPM <laughs> salary. Right? Wow. That's because I think they went IPO. I don't know when they went IPO. I should have probably <laughs> checked, right? But there are people who got like a lot of stock and then they went IPO, for example, right? And then it's like through the roof. But in general, I think they can go by the yardsticks, salary, what you've given. But there are these outliers that you should like yes. clearly know that joining an organization and the timing at which you join the organization kind of plays into that. That's kind of important to note. Thank you so much for this wonderful podcast. We might do another podcast with the author because we had prepared a lot of material, but we're kind of running out of time. So maybe you'll come back and do another one at a later point in time. But thank you so much for joining us and spending like so much time with us and giving so much valuable information to all our listeners. It was a great pleasure talking to you and I probably learned a lot. Readers would really enjoy this. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mari. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you. And my friends, that's the end of this series of podcasts 
with the author of the blog, Engineer Seeking Fire. I hope you found that conversation enlightening and you learned something new. I did for sure. I would greatly appreciate if you could share this podcast with your friends and colleagues or anybody who might be starting the TPM journey. Do check out the website for the transcript and the entire podcast notes. I'll also be posting the link to uh, the blog site for the Engineer Seeking Fire, where you can learn a lot of new financial information. Thank you so much for listening in, and I'll see you at the next episode.